that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM and CJSF 90.1 FM. And I'm so happy to be with you uh, today. So first on the program, uh, we have some local updates um, from Vancouver, a variety of different events um, and stories that we've been following, a few updates to provide on those. Um, And then we go to Chicago for a quick update on protests um, with the NATO summit this past weekend, which took place um, in the Windy City. And in the second part of the show, and we dedicate most of the show um, to discussions of economic growth um, and the, the capitalist paradigm of growth that we seem to be stuck in uh, in, this, in these times, in these neoliberal times, and um, what this means uh, ecologically and for um, social relations, um, uh, among many other things. And so we're going to hear at length um, from... Uh, Richard Heinberg, who is at the Post Carbon Institute and recently uh, spoke in Vancouver um, on these very issues. And uh, we're going to also contrast that with um, Edward Glazer, um, who is um, uh, an uh, an urban uh, economic theorist and uh, has a, a number of things to say about growth and um, how cities foster economic growth. Um, so we're going to play off of these two um, theorists and uh, speak uh, some truth to uh, what's going on um, and uh, put, the, put the environment um, first and foremost where I think it often should be in discussions of economic growth. So we have all that um, and so much more. And uh, we're going to get right into it. So on, um, on, on the last episode of The City um, and previous episodes, um, we've talked about um, the Marple Midden protest um, where the Musqueam uh, Band here in Vancouver um, is uh, working to try to protect land in the Marple neighborhood in South Vancouver. And we're going to go to a quick update from Catherine Fisher from Kootenai Co-op Radio um, on uh, how things are faring uh, with that issue. Following up on a story from the May 6th episode of Groundwire, in Vancouver, Musqueam Nation continues to protest a five-story condominium development proposed to be built adjacent to the Marpole Midden. The proposed development would be built on the ancient village of Cessnam, also known as the Marpole Midden or the Great Fraser Midden. The Midden, which is located on Musqueam unceded territory, has been recognized as a Canadian heritage site since 1933, after more than 700 ancestral remains were discovered there. 
Musqueam Nation first expressed objection to the project in May 2011 after hearing about plans to build on the site. Despite their objections, permits for an archaeological investigation and alteration of the site were issued under the Heritage Conservation Act in December of 2011. In late January of 2012, archaeologists dug up the bones of an adult male on the site. The Musqueam people became aware that this burial had been disturbed in March and set up an initial blockade on March 12th. Two days later, the blockade was brought down after negotiations began with the developer. Talks between the developer, the Musqueam Chief Council and Administration, the City of Vancouver and the province continued for about a month and then the developer began to work again on the site. Musqueam Nation have now proposed a land swap which would ensure the long-term protection of Cessnam, but this transfer requires the approval of the provincial government to go forward and the government has not yet responded to the offer. In the meantime, the developer's spokesperson says they intend to continue working on the site and Musqueam Nation has said they intend to continue with a public protest. Gennargio Sullivan and Woody Morrison spoke with Musqueam member Victor Gurren on Vancouver Co-op Radio last week. The ancient village of Tesnam, where our ancestors lived, are the children of our ancestors, where uh, are the children of our ancestors and some of our ancestors have been laid to rest. And uh, we're, we'll uh, stand and protect it until, until we're uh, victorious in this struggle. And thanks to Catherine Fisher and Groundwire uh, for that update. And now to Vancouver. Um, Women Transforming Cities is a new organization, um, and uh, they have their launch this Thursday, May 24th, May 24th, excuse me, at Vancouver City Hall. And Women Transforming Cities empowers women and girls to make positive changes in their communities. And they're calling on all levels of government to make our cities work for women and girls. Quote, it is time we designed an ideal city for women and girls. If we look at Vancouver through an equity lens, we see that, not, that we are not the number one city in the world in terms of safety, housing, income disparity, and leadership, states Ellen Woodsworth, National Chair of Women Transforming Cities. Vancouver launch, um, the Vancouver launch on May 24th at Vancouver City Hall at 5.30 p.m. includes speakers, uh, includes uh, Penny Gerstein, Chair and Director of the UBC School of Community and Regional Planning, Melanie uh, Medening, uh, Girls Action Foundation, Christine Smith, Vancouver Aboriginal Transformative Justice Society, um, among many other special guests, um, including members from um, the provincial legislature and a number of different municipalities and nonprofit um, and uh, higher edu- higher uh, um, uh, I guess universities is what I'm trying to um, say um, from around the region. So this is the launch of um, Vancouver's Women Transforming Cities. Um, and Wendy Williams, co-chair of Women Transforming Cities, says, quote, Historically, women and girls have not been involved in shaping our cities. Women Transforming Cities will make our future different from the past. And if you want to attend, um, I know they, I believe they still have some tickets left, um, although seating is limited. So you can register at womentransformingcities.eventbrite.ca for more information on this. And I believe um, you can also find this uh, if you just do a Google search um, for Women Transforming Cities. So I... Uh, just wanted to um, make that mention because I think it's certainly an important event um, and uh, it's chaired uh, um, the national uh, 
chair is uh, is Ellen Woodsworth, former uh, Coalition of Progressive Electors um, city councilor, and Ellen um, has done such great work um, in in the city. Um, she was. Um, she was not elected in this last municipal election, um, but she has worked tirelessly for um, not only um, uh, women's and gender issues in this city, but ac- across an, a broad spectrum. So um, certainly great to see this initiative move forward. And just uh, also to note, um, in Montreal uh, today uh, marked the 100th, 100th day of protests um, as um, activists and protesters um, and students uh, took to Montreal streets um, in protest um, of the Quebec government's um, proposed tuition hikes. Um, but also the struggle and these protests have been encompassing such a much broader spectrum of issues. Um, I think from basic issues of um, economic inequality and environmental injustice um, and so much about um, <laughs> what we're seeing across the world and, um, and magnified certainly at the local level. And I think the issue of tuition is only one among myriad other issues um, which we see injustice. So um, they're also out there protesting Bill 78, um, which was emergency legislation passed um, by the provincial liberals, um, Quebec um, liberals, um, basically um, forcing um, groups of 50 or more to um, basically give their intention to demonstrate and protest and provide the details of their protest to police and police are then able to change those um, as they see fit. So uh, (laughs) many civil liberties and civil rights groups, uh, human rights groups, very, very scared about the precedent this set and um, are mobilizing against this and they're going to be putting forward um, some, um, they're going to contest this um, at the, at the, in the courts essentially. So something also to watch as well. Um, we're going to move into uh, coverage of more protests in Chicago um, from FSRN and this is uh, what happened this past weekend um, from Chicago as the NATO summit uh, landed in Chicago. In Chicago, world leaders continue a second day of meetings for the NATO summit. In a declaration issued Sunday, NATO said it would continue to play a role in Afghanistan after combat operations end in 2014. The alliance also commended its role in Libya and said it's contributing to peace and security in the Horn of Africa. But protesters gathered in the streets of Chicago have a different view. They condemned militarism and called on the US to end its wars. From Chicago, Lisa Matuska reports. Thousands of people marched two miles to Chicago's McCormick Place Convention Center, where the heads of NATO were discussing the next steps in international war and funding the military alliance. Protesters were led by Iraq veterans against the war, and the crowd included local residents and activists from across the world, all marching for a variety of issues, including environmental justice, immigrant rights, and anti-capitalist movements. Ben Schatt is with the Chicago group The Coalition Against Corporate Higher Education, who marched with a student in a cap and gown, dragging a giant ball of student debt. It's not only a huge burden on individual students, it doesn't only decrease access to higher education for low- and middle-income families, but like the mortgage crisis, it represents a drag on the economy as a whole. And I think we're going to continue to see the kind of economic, uh, desperate economic straits that we've seen for the last several years until problems like uh, student debt are addressed. 
Baltimore activist Vermin Supreme marched down the street with a boot on his head, conducting what he called clown warfare. I'm attempting to change the, the mood in various uh, points uh, when things get very tense, try and de-escalate it through uh, humorous commentary, um, trying to empower the people, uh, trying to let them know everything's okay. Supreme says he was at an anti-capitalist demonstration Saturday night where he witnessed the protester being struck by a Chicago police car. According to Chicago street medics, the injured protester was taken to the hospital for injuries and then arrested. But Supreme says many police have shown restraint. They've let the people march and march and march and march. Um, you know, overall, I think they've showed restraint. But I mean, what is restraint other than just simply obeying the order from your uh, uh, uppers not to do mass arrests? I mean, you know. And tensions did grow Sunday night. Just after the official rally ended and people were to disperse west, a group of protesters, largely made up of the Black Bloc anarchist group, began shouting, NATO's east. The group began pushing towards the police, who responded with violence, leaving groups of protesters bleeding from baton blows to the head. Several officers were also injured, including one who was stabbed in the leg, according to Chicago police chief. Lines about four people deep of blue-helmeted police pushed lingering protesters to the west. Police gave orders for protesters to move over loudspeaker devices called LRADs, or Long Range Acoustic Devices, which Chicago police acquired specifically for the summit. This is the Chicago Police Department. Please continue to disperse to the west. The device is also capable of making a high-pitched noise that is unpleasant to the human ear. And many protesters on the sidewalk and streets were concerned the police would use these to disperse the crowds, but the tactic was not used. The local chapter of the National Lawyers Guild said about 70 were arrested, most of whom have been released, some without charge. Others received misdemeanors, ordinance violations, and failure to disperse violations. Demonstrations continued today, including a small group that marched to Boeing's headquarters. Lisa Matuska, FSRN, Chicago. And thanks to FSRN for providing that coverage uh, from Chicago. And now uh, we move into um, the majority of the show, and we're talking about um, economic growth and the role of cities. And I want to first go to a clip from um, Harvard's um, Edward Glazer, and he um, is known for uh, his work and research on uh, the role of cities in economic growth. Um, and um, before saying more, uh, let's go right into this. Um, but do keep in mind that Edward uh, has a very much uh, neoliberal pro-growth perspective. Recent trends in, in the world economy, globalization, new technologies have increased the returns to being smart. They've increased the returns to new innovations, which can now be made on one side of the planet and sold on the other side of the planet. We're a social species. Our greatest asset is our ability to learn from people around us. We get smart by being around other smart people. That's, that's what cities do. They magnify the human ability to learn from other people and to come up with amazing new Innovations. If you think about humankind's greatest hits, from Athenian philosophy to uh, the Industrial Revolution to, to Facebook, these are things that were made in cities by collaborative chains of creative people who borrowed each other's ideas and competed with each other and did things that were really magical. That type of change, that type of innovation is more valuable and more important than ever. And that's why cities like London have come back from the tough era of deindustrialization and have come roaring back as places where people learn from one another and, and further their dreams. 
In the long run, economic growth is founded on the strength of human capital. Skills are the ultimate determinant of, of how any country will fare in the 21st century. So I think the most important thing is not, is not necessarily throwing more money at education, but figuring out how to use the money that is being spent as effectively and as, as wisely as possible to create innovation in that industry as well and to ensure that all of our children have the chance for, for a brighter future. On top of that, uh, harnessing the power of cities like London is also absolutely critical. Now, the budget can do this, I think, by creating uh, stronger incentives to allow London to, to push London to allow more building, right? That in the long run, London can provide economic opportunity for more people only if it provides more housing. And that means a strong push from the center to, al to allow more construction in, in London. And then, I think, third, we need to think carefully about those investments in infrastructure that are in involved in, in outlying areas. While certainly those forms of investment that meet cost-benefit analysis should be followed, we should recognize that for a lot of people now living in other places, their future will be best served if they actually move to the most productive city that they can. In the long run, urban reinvention is associated with smaller firms, skilled people, and connections to the outside world. These were the things that enabled the, you know, made, made Birmingham great in the 18th century, and that, these are the things that, that made Detroit into the center of America's automobile industry at the start of the 20th century. But industrialization had a huge hangover because industrialization created enormous amounts of productivity in the short run by collecting people in large, vertically integrated firms, and it provided jobs for lots of less skilled people, and that, that was a great thing for the time. But the, the leftover of that, the, the cities that were formed with that, now have uh, large firms and less, less well-educated people, and that's, that's a heavy lift for these, these areas. In many cases, the right response is to recognize that they're never going to attain the same population level that they once had, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. If a city is doing the best it can to provide a, a future economic, social, cultural for the, the children in its area, there's no reason why it necessarily has to add more people. But it also should involve itself in those policies, like worrying about eliminating unnecessary regulations that stymie entrepreneurship, like investing in human capital that are uh, well-known correlates of, of economic regeneration. And that was Edward Glazer talking about the role of cities in economic growth. And we're going to go to an entirely different perspective. And I would say this is a reality check on where we are um, ecologically um, and economically. We see inequality rising. We see um, resource extraction um, to an extent where it cannot be sustained. Um, and we're going to take a quick break, but then we're going to go to um, Richard Heinberg, who is a fellow at the post, senior fellow at the Post Carbon Institute, and he's the author of nine previous books, including The Party's Over, Peak Everything, and Blackout. And um, he has been speaking uh, for many years now on the urgent need to transition away from fossil fuels and look at a new paradigm um, and wake up to a new reality um, and a new economic reality, uh, which is not based on growth. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Vancouver's Sid Chow Tan is a social and environmental activist known for both television programs like Earth Scene and for his 20-year struggle against Canada's 1929 Chinese Immigration Act. Tan also ran for public office as part of the Green Party in 1999. He is an active community service volunteer and holds posts at the Fire Hall Arts Centre and the Chinese Canadian National Council, among others. This PSA was brought to you in support of Asian Heritage Month by CITR 101.9 FM. 
with the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. This is a call for artists with a community focus and performance artists for site-specific installation. Public Dreams is calling emerging, professional, and community artists of all disciplines to submit work that may be showcased as the marketing campaign for Illuminaris 2012. Public Dreams will bring the Illuminaris Lantern Festival back to Trout Lake. For submission guidelines, more information, or to donate, please visit publicdreams.org today. Thanks so much. Well, I'm, I'm going to be talking to you about the, uh, the substance of uh, my most recent book, The End of Growth. Uh, it, the, the, the title sort of tells you uh, it, it, the nutshell picture. It's an observation and a controversial one, I, I'd be the first to admit, but I'm, I'm far from being the only observer to have come to this conclusion. Um, just after the book appeared in uh, September last year, I had occasion to be speaking with uh, Jeff Rubin, who's the former chief economist of CIBC. And uh, he informed me that he had just signed a contract with Random House for a book with the same title. <laughs> <clears throat> well, so what, why would either Jeff Rubin or me or a number of other analysts who, who, as I said, come to the same conclusion, why would we be making this controversial claim? Well. Um, I regard my book as, as, a, as a bookend, if you will, to a, a, a previous uh, tome published in 1972 called Limits to Growth. It was the result of a computer scenario modeling exercise carried out by a team of scientists at MIT using, of course, primitive computers and, and uh, preliminary data and so on. But they fed in data about population growth, resource depletion, and environmental impacts of industrial processes, and uh, produced a series of scenarios depending on the, uh, the, the input, a series of, of, of different um, groups of input data. But the, the standard run scenario showed a, a peak and decline in world industrial output in the first couple of decades of the 21st century. Of course, this was completely unacceptable to mainstream economists who believe that economic growth is normal, natural, and, it can come and can go on forever. So they were widely reviled, and, and to this day, many people believe that the limits to growth uh, studies have been discredited. In fact, uh, where they've been compared with real-life data uh, that's appeared over the past 40 years, it's actually been shown that the standard-run scenario is, is the closest to what's actually uh, emerging. The idea that, that the economy can't go on growing forever is actually pretty intuitively obvious when you think about it. We live on a finite planet. Economic growth, growth in GDP effectively means growth in consumption. How can we continue growing our consumption of resources on a finite planet forever? Um, this prosaic little example. Think of a hamster. Newborn hamster is doubles its body weight every week. 
grows very rapidly at first. So what would happen if our, if our baby hamster continued doubling its body weight every week for one whole year? How big a hamster would we have? Would it be 25 pounds? Would it be 100 pounds? Actually, we would have a 9 billion ton hamster on our hands. Of course, that's never going to happen because nature doesn't work that way. Things grow up to a point, then they level off. And they... So what, how have we gotten to this point of, of thinking of economic growth as somehow being normal? Well, it all has to do with energy. Without energy, nothing happens. But if you have lots of energy, you can do lots of things. For centuries and millennia, we relied on uh, solar energy gathered through green plants and other animals. Um, and we exerted energy into our environments by way of muscle power. But there were limits to the amount of energy we could gather and exert on that basis. When we started using fossil fuels a couple of centuries ago, all of that changed. We had access suddenly to highly concentrated, cheap fuels that had been produced over millions of years. And we had, had to exert no effort whatsoever in the production of those fuels, merely in the extraction of them. Uh, think of it this way. Maybe you've had the experience of running out of gas in your car. And excuse me for using US metrics here. But maybe having had the experience of pushing your car 10 feet off to the side of the road, that's hard work, right? Imagine pushing your car 30 miles. How much work is that? Well, it turns out to be equivalent to at least six to eight weeks of hard labor, depending on you know, how, how muscular you, you are and so on. So we get that done for us, pushing our car 30 miles. We get that done with a single gallon of gasoline, for which we in California are paying less than $4. I think you all are paying a bit more than that, but let's say $5, OK? Um, six to eight weeks of labor for $5? Can't get labor that cheap anywhere on the planet. And of course, that's why we've mechanized every process of production and, and transport we possibly could over the past uh, century or two. And that's given us enormous economic growth. Um, over the last couple of thousand years, you know, empires have risen and fallen, but barely shows up on the graph. Just in the last 200 years, economic output explodes. And of course, also in the last 200 years, population explodes from under 1 billion to over 7 billion today. So multiply that per capita increase in economic output by the number of capitas, you know, sevenfold increase, and you get some idea of the enormous amount of wealth that's been created largely as a result of having so much cheap energy with which to manufacture and transport stuff. Powered assembly lines enabled us to make stuff at extraordinary rates. And so the problem, the economic problem of the early 20th century was the problem of overproduction. And some economists even say that helped pave the way for the Great Depression. So how did we solve this problem of overproduction? Two strategies. One, advertising, talking people into wanting more stuff than they otherwise would. And there were subsidiary strategies to that, like planned obsolescence, making consumer items that would wear out before they really needed to, or that looked different every year so that everybody would want to have the latest model. Uh, but then there was another strategy that we deployed as well, uh, consumer credit. 
Uh, consumer credit, pushing consumption forward in time. Consume now, pay later. Okay, so these two strategies together succeeded in overcoming this, this, largely overcoming this problem of overproduction, and the rest of the 20th century was one big party. Uh, we, we also altered our monetary and financial systems in order to accommodate increased consumption. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, money was tied to precious metals, gold and silver. But the amount of gold and silver in the world was fairly limited. Of course, we, we were mining more all the time, but that, that was a, a fairly small influence on the total amount available. So over the course of the 20th century, we de-linked uh, money from precious metals. So what is money today if it's not gold or silver? It's debt. Money is debt and debt is money. If you go into the bank, take out a $10,000 loan, the banker doesn't look into the vault and try to find $10,000 that somebody else put there. No, the banker goes to the computer and enters $10,000 in your account and that's money that didn't exist prior to that moment. When you pay back the $10,000 loan, that money ceases to exist. It's magic and it's that simple. Well, uh, there are few technicalities, but it's really, seriously, it's uh, money creation is, is just about that simple. So <clears throat> that enabled uh, money creation to keep up with the expansion of the economy that could occur because we had so much cheap energy to make it happen. Uh, the problem with that scenario, of course, is that when you take out the loan and the banker creates that $10,000, the interest that you're going to have to pay on that loan is not created at the same time. So where does that come from? Well, it comes from other people taking out loans elsewhere in the economy and then you're doing business with them, presumably, uh, working for them or selling stuff to them. And as long as the total amount of debt is increasing, then the total money supply is increasing and, and then presumably everybody's going to be able to pay back their loan with interest. So we've created a financial system and a monetary system that actually depend on continuous growth in order to function. If the economy stops growing, then the financial system begins to feed upon itself. Loans are defaulted upon, people lose their jobs, and when they lose their jobs, they're no longer good candidates for loans. Banks won't loan them money, and then the whole thing starts to creak and groan and shrink. Well, 1980s were a turning point in all of this because globalization started. Why was this important? Well, because we had container ships now and uh, uh, computerized monitoring of inventories, global communications, it became possible to ship stuff all over the world and manufacture stuff wherever labor was cheapest. So. Workers in highly industrialized countries like Canada and the U.S. were suddenly competing with workers on the other side of the planet, which drove down wages. Hourly wages for U.S. workers haven't increased since 1973 in inflation-adjusted terms. So <clears throat> this meant uh, uh, there was a problem. If uh, American workers weren't making more money, how were they going to consume more stuff? Remember, they're still being advertised at for hours every day. They want to consume, they want to have bigger houses and bigger cars and so on. And the economy wants them to consume more because the economy is 70% consumer spending. So how do we make this happen with more debt? And so since uh, 1980, in virtually every year, I think one year was an exception to this, but virtually every year, 
Debt has grown faster than GDP, and I'm talking here about household debt, consumer debt, not government debt. Household debt was growing much faster than government debt during, during this, most of this period, right up until 2008, when with the, the financial crash in, in the US, suddenly consumer debt started to level off and decline, and the, and the government stepped in as the borrower and spender of last resort in order to keep the financial uh, system from, from crashing. So, unfortunately, it's a little bright for you to see these slides very well. Um, I've, I've just outlined to you what I think is one reason why the economy is reaching uh, its limits to growth in real time, and that's limits to debt. We have taken on so much debt, both consumer debt and, and in many countries, government debt, that further increases are very difficult. The, the assumption has been that this debt was justified because the economy would keep growing and growing and we'd be able to pay it back. But now growth is getting more difficult and so the world is in a kind of growth crisis. Why is growth getting more difficult? Because energy is getting more problematic. Oil is, is probably the most important of our energy sources from an economic point of view because it's portable and concentrated. It's the perfect transport fuel and therefore something like 98% of our transport system runs on oil in one form or another. Oil, of course, is a finite resource. And we're not about to run out, but it's getting harder. The US, of course, was the epicenter of the world industry in the early 20th century, not just, I mean, we, we're used to thinking of the US as the world's foremost oil importer, which of course it has been for some decades. But in the early 20th century, the US was the world's foremost oil exporter by far. Half the world's oil coming from oil fields in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Southern California, and so on. But that changed um, over time. US oil discoveries peaked in 1930, production peaked in 1970. And even with really big new discoveries in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico in the 1970s and 80s, it really hasn't changed the picture that much. U.S. oil production is down to a little over half of what it was at its peak. The same thing is happening to country after country around the world. And in fact, world oil discoveries peaked around 1964-65. Again, it's not as though we're running out of oil, but it, the world actual world oil production has been stagnant since 2005, even in the face of very high prices. Back in the year 2000, the responsible agencies like International Energy Agency, U.S. Department of Energy, were forecasting that by this time, 2012, world oil prices would be in the range of $35, $40 a barrel in inflation-adjusted terms. Where are they actually? Well, the world price is about $115 a barrel. So you'd think with prices this high, everybody who can produce oil would, bring as, would be bringing as much to market as they possibly can, but look where we are. It's a, the graph is barely budging for years. The Australian government uh, released a study a couple of years ago, which I think is the best government study I've seen on this to date, which includes the, the unconventional oil from tar sands and oil shale and, and so on in its forecast and projects uh, the beginning of the decline in world oil production for around 2015, three years from now. Now, whether they're exactly right or not, it's, it's pretty clear that 
the, the, the low-grade, hard-to-access, expensive-to-produce energy that we're getting from tar sands and oil shale and, and, and so on that actually co costs not so much just more money to produce, but more energy to produce. That's not going to be able to make up for cheap, concentrated, high-quality, conventional crude as conventional crude really starts declining. Canada, the production of uh, conventional oil has been declining or stagnant for years, and what's half of Canada's production now is from tar sands. This is what the oil industry looked like in the 1930s. This is what it looks like today, drilling in miles of ocean water. And so <coughs> drilling costs per foot are up dramatically over the past few years, and we're having to drill deeper. So the oil industry needs higher prices to justify going out looking for new oil. If prices dip below about $85, the oil companies just stop looking because it's not worth it. But meanwhile, we've learned from recent experience over the past few decades that every time there's an oil price spike, the economy goes into a tailspin. Those vertical gray bars are recessions over the past 40 years. And as you can see, every time the oil price jumps, a recession follows. Now, correlation is not causation, but it's a pretty strong correlation. Another correlation that's, uh, that's appearing is between oil and food prices because we have a food system that depends so much on liquid fuels for uh, fuel for tractors and for transporting inputs to the farm. Many of those inputs are made out of oil, like uh, pesticides and herbicides, and then transporting outputs from the farm ultimately to the consumer's plate. So uh, 2008, again 2011, record food prices. Also, not just due to high oil prices, but also due to weird weather, which has been increasing as a result of our burning all of these fossil fuels and changing the chemistry of the atmosphere. So here's a third reason why e economic growth is coming to an end. We've talked about debt and depletion. There's a third D, disaster. Um, <clears throat> you know, the cost of weird weather and industrial accidents like the Deepwater Horizon catastrophe of, of uh, 2010, the cost of these events is increasing exponentially. Uh, 2010, we saw record droughts, floods, and <coughs> Deepwater Horizon, which cost, cost tens of billions it's just for one, one show there. Um, so by the end of the year, the insurance company had counted up costs of something like $250 billion. Well, last year, 2011, we passed that $250 billion mark by June. Every year we're setting new records and the insurance industry is very worried about this. You know, the, the, the fossil fuel companies and, and others are uh, spreading all of this uh, messages about climate change. Well, you know, the science isn't in yet, and we'll have to wait and see. And so, well, that's not what the insurance industry is saying. <laughs> so, if this is right, if, in fact, economic growth is coming to an end, there are some pretty severe challenges on the horizon. But as we hit limits to debt, the way that nations are responding is with austerity. And this, this is impacting not only nations, but also uh, provinces, states, counties in the U.S. Budgets are being cut, uh, and that in turn has a social impact. People 
depend on these services. And so as, as the cutbacks happen, we see people turning out in the streets, uh, not only in Egypt and Greece and Ireland, but now in uh, New York and Washington and maybe even Vancouver. So what, what, what can we do about all of this? Well, it would be nice to say that there are solutions, but solutions implies our getting back to what we think of as normal. But maybe what we think of as normal is not normal at all. It's a highly anomalous period in world economic history. And what we need to do is not get back to normal because that's pretty much impossible, but adapt to new conditions. We are, after all, a highly adaptable species. It's not as though you know, we're going to wilt and blow away as a result of, of having to face hard times. We've been through hard times before. Just in the 20th century, we had two world wars and a Great Depression. But it's, I think, important to be able to foresee hard times where the signs are very clear on the horizon and take adaptive measures wherever possible. And the kinds of adaptive measures that are needed are, I think, are pretty clear. They have to do with, with rethinking our food systems, our transport systems, our financial systems, and more. We're also going to have to rethink economics itself, because economics is a set of theories and ideas that was born out of the Industrial Revolution. It really only goes back a couple of hundred years. So when economists saw all of this growth happening, they, they attributed it not to energy and invention so much, uh, so much as the magic of the market. So conventional economists see no limits to growth. Uh, they see resources as being infinite. They see uh, the planet as, as being able to support economic growth in perpetuity. They, they come to some kind of strange conclusions that the, the natural world, the environment, is a subset of the economy. It's just a set of resources that we extract and turn into products which ultimately become waste. In fact, of course, the human economy is a subset of the global ecosystem, always has been and always will be. If the ecosystem fails, the economy fails. Growth in population and consumption can't go on forever. They are not sustainable. You can do these things for a period of time, as we've done over the past couple of hundred years, but you follow out those growth curves for a little while, and just as with our example earlier of the hamster, you get to absurdities. How about China's growth at 10% per year? That's a doubling time of seven years. So that means every seven years, China's economy is going to double in size. How long can you do that? Uh, China's already using half the world's coal, three billion tons per year. Does the world have enough coal available in terms of export capacity in order to help China continue growing its coal consumption at 7% per year, which it's been doing for the past few years? No, is the short answer to that question. And so I, I, it's doubtful that China will be able to accomplish even one more doubling of its, of its economy. Um, renewable resources have to be harvested at less than the rate of natural replenishment. Simple principle. It has to do with fish and forests and everything else that's renewable. Renewability doesn't mean that it's, it can't be exhausted, as we've seen with species ex extinctions. 
Uh, Non-renewable resources have to be recycled wherever possible and where they can't be. Obviously, if we're burning fossil fuels, we can't recycle what we burn. Use has to decline. So those are very simple principles. Can we follow those principles and still build these things? No. I don't know. How we're building them now is with virtually slave labor on the other side of the planet, so materials have to be transported a long way to get to the factories and then transport the finished goods from the factories a long way to get to us using uh, quickly depleting scarce uh, and rare minerals and metals. So I think we can pretty fairly conclude that the, the way we make these things is unsustainable. Now, when I use that word, I don't mean it's not eco-groovy. <laughs> I mean, we can't do it for very long. Now, how long? I don't know. Five years, seven years, ten years? It would be a ballpark guess. I don't know. But it's not centuries. Right? So we should be making other plans. I mean, can we make these things out of renewable resources in, in church basements in, in, on a community level? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But somewhere in between what we're doing now and that, you know, we've got to find some, some middle ground. Obviously not everything is at peak, you know, we're, we're maybe seeing uh, declining topsoil and water and fossil fuels and all sorts of other things, but, but there, there are aspects of, of uh, human experience that are inexhaustible, you know, creativity, cooperation, sense of community and artistry and so on. Well, we should be concentrating on growing these things rather than growing consumption because we could actually have a way of life that's every bit as satisfying, in fact, more satisfying than what we enjoy now while we consume much less, which is what we'll be doing. Um, it's going to be a tough period, no matter how you figure it, because we waited so long to make the transition. But there are a lot of strategies that I think could help enormously, like community economic laboratories. Uh, every community already has some alternative economic you know, uh, organizations happening, whether it's uh, car share programs or, or job centers or, or uh, whatever. But if, they, if these things could be brought together in, uh, under one roof in a prominent place within the community so that people know that that's there and if they want to volunteer they know where to go, if they need help they know where to go because these kinds of things are going, increasingly going to become the backbone of the economy rather than being little add-on uh, features. So um, I think I was supposed to talk for half an hour and I think I've just done that. <laughs> um, I've just finished by saying uh, and maybe reiterating what I said a, a moment ago, you know, we have been through tough times before, and clearly <coughs> folks are worried. We have, we have tough times on the horizon. And I think it's up to those of us who are sort of the adults in the room, who've assumed positions of, uh, as planners or policy makers, not to simply deny that this is happening, which is what, uh, unfortunately, so many policymakers are, are doing. And I think po politics more or less forces folks to do this. You know, nobody wants to be the first politician to, to stand up and say, vote for me and the economy will stop growing. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, I, I think we have to be realistic and, and begin to incorporate 
natural limits into our, into our planning at every level on every scale. So that's my message to you, and I think we have a few minutes for comments and questions. Thank you very much. And that was Richard Heinberg. He's a senior fellow with the Post Carbon Institute, and he's talking about the end of economic growth and the new economic paradigm um, that we are seeing uh, emerging in these times. And I just wanted to uh, highlight a few things. I think it's uh, in contrast to what you heard earlier from um, Edward Glazer, um, an urban economist at Harvard, um, who in many ways glorifies economic growth um, and uh, really has no engagement um, with uh, the notions of limits, limits to growth. Um, we have a finite planet, and I think Richard um, summed that up brilliantly um, in this uh, relatively quick um, keynote address from the uh, School of Community and Regional Planning's uh, planning symposium this past February. Uh, so, and I want to end with a question I had a chance um, at the symposium to ask uh, Richard Heinberg, and uh, we're going to go to that right now. Um, I'm constantly struck um, in so many of these discussions how importantly land plays into all of this, and I, I'm just curious how, how on a very practical level we can sort of kind of insert ourselves into these larger systems that are at play um, and change structures. So, for example, how do we do these community laboratories where we have, um, we have healthcare, we have um, food, we have our own garden space, we have all of these things, especially in the context of an urban settlement where we're seeing speculation is out of control. Right. And how do we sort of insert ourselves into these, these land markets um, and compete with all of these uh, other exchange, exchange values and deal with that in a practical way um, and do it on an urban scale rather than having to think about this maybe out in suburbs or even out where we don't have access to those kinds of services and amenities. Yeah, I thought about that a bit and um, I, I have a kind of radical suggestion and right now it applies a lot more to California than it does to, to Vancouver. Um, in California, almost any town you go to right now, there are lots of vacant spaces, both commercial and, uh, and residential. Um, meanwhile, we need things like community economic laboratories, even at a neighborhood scale, uh, as you say, community gardens, places where people can meet and, and compare notes and talk about how to respond to these things. Well, how do you put those two things together? Well, somehow I think communities are going to have to find ways to uh, pry these vacant uh, facilities loose from the market yeah. and make them available to, to the citizens. Uh, Vancouver may just be a few, you know, a couple of years behind uh, California in this regard. I, I see a lot of for sale signs around the city as I as as I'm driven around from event to event. <laughs> so uh, you know, yeah, the, the property market is, has held up here uh, longer than is the case in California. But you know, what goes up must come down. 
And that was Richard Heinberg again responding to my question about how we actually fundamentally change uh, what we're doing um, to provide for the transition that we that uh, we must undertake um, with energy scarcity and peak oil and um, all of these issues, climate change, making uh, crop yields and other forms of agricultural production um, somewhat uh, somewhat more challenging um, in, in many contexts and geographically across the world, um, among many other issues. So uh, that was Richard Heinberg. Um, he is the author of, his, uh, of the recent book, The End of Growth. Um, and uh, it is about adapting to this new economic reality that we find ourselves in. Um, and uh, this has been The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and I want to thank you so much for listening. Um, we're just uh, about at the end of the show, and I just want to remind you that you can find The City on CITR 101.9 FM as well as CJSF 90.1 FM. And um, you can find it uh, through both those websites, citr.ca and cjsf.ca. And the show's website is thecityfm.wordpress.com. And you can just Google uh, the city um, on CITR as well. And uh, the city is on Facebook and Twitter as well. So um, you can get the city um, at, at uh, any social media and uh, through so many different means. So, um, again, the city on CITR, um, both that's the Twitter handle um, as well as uh, the Facebook page name. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for tuning in. And we're going to end with a track from Hot Panda. And it's from the recent release, Go Outside, Hot Panda, from Edmonton. And uh, the track it's called Future Markets, and um, certainly to go in our theme with talking about growth um, and the need to realize uh, a different paradigm uh, where we are aware of our ecological constraints um, and aware that we need to change the way that our cities run um, and that our society um, is, oper- is op- basically how we operate uh, society and civilization and fundamentally change our social relations in doing so for a more just um, and equitable um, uh, social um, experience. So again, Hot Panda with Future Markets. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM and CJSF 90.1. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah.